Thank you for joining the Quantum AI series. We feature the global innovators shaping the future of quantum computing. And today, the ICERA, this morning, the ICERA Corporation, the world's leading provider of quantum safe security solutions, announced the launch of the ICERA Advanced Crypto Agility Suite, a first of its kind enterprise solution that allows organizations to discover their cryptographic blind spots and equip them to take action against the looming threat of encryption breaking quantum computers. So today we meet Mr. Mike Brown, the Chief Technology Officer and co-founder of ICERA. ICERA Corporation's vision is a world where consumers, enterprises, and governments can benefit from the power of quantum computing with protection against quantum attacks. And Mike is focused on the technical vision and direction of the company. Mike, thank you so very much for accepting my invitation. Your kind courtesies are greatly appreciated. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Awesome. Thank you so much. So to get us started, how would you define or how do you define quantum computing? Yeah, really quantum computing, quantum computing in, in um, our mind is really the ability to leverage certain fundamental properties of the universe to solve problems that we can't currently solve today. And what's exciting about it is that we have all of these years in building digital computers then now that we can extend those advances by taking advantage of things like superposition and um, all these other properties like quantum entanglement to do such cool new things. So it's really an exciting area. Great, thank you so much for helping us with that. And uh, from your perspective, why is quantum computing of great importance right now? What are some of the key advantages of quantum, please? Yeah, so the idea, as I mentioned before, about leveraging those you know, physical properties of nature for computing, um, that that came up in in the 1980s. So, uh, you know, famous physicist Richard Feynman was one of the first people to really talk about this idea. But it's really only over the last decade when that sort of theoretical advances coupled with the engineering and physical advances necessary to try to build one of these computers so we've really seen you know this huge progress coupled with that you know one of the, the challenges about quantum computing is that it computes differently of course than what our computers that we have uh, today so you know in addition to the engineering problems the chemistry problems the physics problems computer science problems of building these machines we have to think about how do we actually design algorithms to take advantage of this. And if we think through, you know, the the work that's been going on over the last sort of 20 years, a lot of that has been around kind of defining those specific problems where we can use those properties of quantum computers to solve things in chemistry and solve problems in material science and in cryptography um, as well. That has really helped drive all of this effort. So what is a quantum attack? Your company is trying to protect the world from quantum attacks. Yeah, so as I mentioned, quantum computers can solve you know, some specific problems. And I think it's important to remember that a quantum computer, while it's a general purpose computer, it's probably not going to replace the laptops that we're all using today. It, think of it more like a like a, a GPU, so like a graphics processing unit, where it solves certain types of problems really, really well. One of the problems that it solves really, really well was uh, discovered by Peter Shor. And with Shor's algorithm, 
he defined a way for a quantum computer to solve a certain math problem very, very efficiently. And that's wonderful from the, the mathematics perspective and the computer science perspective. Unfortunately, that math problem underlies the public key cryptography and the mathematics of the RSA system and the elliptic curve system that we use throughout the internet. So the idea of a quantum attack is to leverage the power of a quantum computer along with Shor's algorithm to break the cryptography that we use for protecting you know, commercial communications that are going across the internet every day. And so it's that specific attack that companies need to start thinking about, well, how do they defend themselves against it? Even though quantum computer doesn't exist yet that can break those problems, the planning that we're going to have to do in order to prepare for it is going to take a long, long time. Now, this is a huge um, scale issue from an IT perspective. Okay, thank you for clarifying that for us. And please share with us a bit more about today's exciting product announcement regarding the launch of the Crypto Agility, the, the Acera Advanced Crypto Agility Suite. Can you please explain this new cryptographic management platform and tell us who needs this new solution? I, absolutely. So we, you know, Acera was formed just over six years ago, actually, and we started focusing very strongly on how do we make you know quantum safe cryptography? So the, those those things that we're going to use uh, in the future to protect ourselves from quantum attack. Um, how do we make sure those that are efficient enough to integrate into products that um, customers will use? But as we had conversations with customers all around the world, the feedback that we got over and over again was, well, I understand that this is a problem, but I don't know the scale of the problem, and that and that's because I don't know where the crypto is in my environment. I have a discovery issue. I don't know if there's crypto that is within my browser and then the crypto that's there, I don't know whether it's good or bad or indifferent then. So there's this issue that we've seen across governments and large enterprises all around the world where they have a lack of visibility into the cryptography that their um, organization relies upon and also a lack of tools to help them um, discover those issues and then start thinking about that planning process. You know, we talk to a lot of governments, uh, for example, about this type of problem. A federal government is typically going to take 10 to 20 years to make a cryptographic transition. You know, I, if I talk to a large bank, for example, they're typically seven to 10 years. And that's with the experience of going through things like the SHA-1, the SHA-2 transition, going from triple DES to AES. So they have a little bit of, you know, institutional muscle memory on thinking about this. But the scale of the transition that moving to quantum safe cryptography is going to bring is enormous. And so organizations need tools to help them prepare and help them to work through this. And ICERA Advance is focused on providing those tools. So do you primarily work with financial institutions and governments? Yeah, we, the, those are two of our really big customer bases. We, we talk to um, governments around the world. We talk to um, kind of banks and large financial institutions around the world. We also work with a lot of companies such as um, automakers. You know, automakers, if you think about them, uh, you know, what's a car but a computer on wheels? Um, you know, the some of the latest, you know, like a Ford F-150 is going to have over 100 million lines of code inside of it then. And among that code is the enormous amount of crypto. So we do a lot of work with automakers around the world, um, work in the um, uh, aviation uh, space as well, too. And, and those run the gamut from understanding how do I look at the use of cryptography and model it so that we know what types of processor choices we need to make for our platforms going forward up to, you know, say, a large organization like a bank who needs to think about how do I do this IT planning problem of transitioning from 
vulnerable crypto that I have today to quantum safe crypto of the future. Are you getting much traction yet from the healthcare industry, hospital systems? Yeah, healthcare is a fascinating area because, you know, one, there's all of the different players in this space. So you have sort of the, the hospitals, all of the insurance companies around it. Um, pharmaceuticals, uh, pharmaceutical companies are extremely forward looking when it comes to security because what's a pharmaceutical, co pharmaceutical company, but a company that has intellectual property, which is the lifeblood of their organization. You know, if you think about an FDA trial costing a billion dollars to go through, these are hugely important to protect um, the, that information they have there. Uh, we also do work, you know, talking to uh, companies that are actually building um, uh, healthcare products then. So if we think about, you know, a, if we were say 20 years ago, maybe talking about, you know, mechanical hearts or things like that as being a healthcare product that you, you know, plant inside someone. Now, you know, it's quite common where people will have insulin pumps that will be attached to them. And this is a computer, which is partially inside your body then, which you're communicating over wireless channels to send it information around how much insulin your body is going to have access to. And, and these are extremely important that they're tuned correctly from a health perspective, but then also from a security perspective that no one could subvert those. So we see a lot of interest from people that are building implantable health care devices because they know that you know, in the quantum threat, we have to worry about long-term security. And there's not much that's more long-term than something that you're going to surgically put inside someone's body. It's not too easy to go in and out and make changes to those then. So you have to think up front about many, many issues, including security. Now, most of your clients based in North America, are you global or? Yeah, so as, as a company, we're based in Waterloo, Canada. So right in the heart of sort of the, the uh, Silicon Valley North, as it's sometimes called. Um, so where we do a lot of work within North America, but also globally as well, too. You know, we have partnerships that have been announced with um, NICT in Japan, who is the um, uh, authority looking after computer security for uh, government networks. So we do a lot of work there. We have partnerships that we've announced with people like Volkswagen uh, Group as well, too, where, as I mentioned, automakers um, before and other automakers around the world as well, too. But the threat from quantum computers and the preparation that organizations need to make crosses all countries around the world and all organizations. The question isn't really uh, if it's going to affect you, it's when you need to start to worry about this problem and when do you need to start putting plans in place then. So we, we do, uh, we have a very busy practice around the world. And can you share a specific example of the type of work that you, you've done for clients, please? Yeah. So. You know, if we let's, let's pick on automakers for uh, example, because there's three things that automakers are all dealing with right now. So number one is autonomy, the ability for cars to effectively drive themselves. The second one is electrification. So moving away from fossil fuel based um, vehicles to um, all electric cars. Um, and then the third one is over the air software updates. You know, over 50% of recalls for vehicles in North America are software related. If you think about the costs associated with a recall to a manufacturer, the ability to do that software update in the driveway or the parking lot where that car is, is spending the night is hugely beneficial, both for the consumer in terms of just the not having to deal with it, and also from the manufacturer in terms of the cost savings, not having to send that into a mechanic to do the work then. So there, the auto, auto industry is doing a huge amount of work in terms of thinking about the computing platforms that uh, cars and, and trucks and all vehicles are, are in the future then. And one of those is thinking about security. So um, 
in vehicles, they currently use CAN bus as being the networking stack uh, in terms of how the car runs, but they're moving to Ethernet. And then if you think about what that means is that, well, I have my um, ECU, so the electronic control unit, which is at my braking uh, uh, brake subsystem, and that's going to communicate with the drivetrain system. And when there's signals going back and forth, I need to make sure those are authentic. So we've done work with um, some customers where they're looking at, well, if we want that to be quantum safe, what is the impact to the speed of the network? Because of course, the brakes still need to fire fast enough to actually react to what's going on around you. So you need to you have very specific time uh, targets you need to hit. And it's an Ethernet connection within the vehicle then. So you still need to think about, well, how do I get packets through there fast enough so that it's not impacting the system so it can be um, uh, as time responsive as it needs to be to be on the road then. So we do a lot of projects like that where it's helping customers understand what are the impacts of the new crypto going to be to the systems that they want to deploy. Thank you. That's fascinating work. Exciting work. It is. Yeah, we really enjoy it. it it's that great intersection of mathematics and computer science into real world applications where we need to think about how do we solve how do we solve problems that people deal with every day and one of the things that the IT industry has done a wonderful job with is making crypto in a lot of ways ubiquitous you know we have so many products that we use every day that are, are reliant on cryptography that we don't even know it if you put a Bluetooth headset in, um, then it's using crypto when it's authenticating to the phone or computer or whatever it is that it's connecting to then. You know, where when you get into your vehicle, your car, you know, is probably going to be doing an over-the-air software update. It's going to be checking, at least for the infotainment unit, the, the software that's running there. If you have something like Cirrus Satellite, is doing elliptic curve transactions um, back into the network to authenticate that it's allowed to have access to the service for you as a subscriber. So the crypto is everywhere. And, and that's, that's my background is math. So that's really cool in terms of how we think about those problems. But then in terms of thinking about the real world migration problems that this comes up, it's a, an amazing area. Thank you. Now the term crypto agility is discussed on your website. How do you define crypto agility? What exactly is that? Yeah, at it, its highest level, crypto agility is about the problem of how do I move from one crypto within my product or system or whatever I'm using to something else then? And as an, as a, an IT industry, we've had to deal with cryptographic transitions a number of times before. So I mentioned, and, and these can be for lots of reasons. You know, one can be a standard that we rely upon is no longer secure. So hash functions going from SHA-1 to SHA-2. And the cost within my system to make that change, if I have crypto agility built in, then I can minimize the cost as much as possible because the products can change crypto in a, in a more simplified way. The protocols can be negotiated to change the cryptographic uh, crypto that you're using then. So the if I'm using smart cards, I have agility built into the smart card so that I can change certificates on there to leverage new algorithms. And so at a high level, the agility term is a little bit fluffy in terms of, you know, it's thinking about how do I change from one system to another, but where we spend a lot of time with our customers is helping them understand what does it mean within their specific products and within their specific networks. Because if I'm a IT administrator who is buying off the shelf products, crypto agility for me might just be um, changing settings within a console to switch from triple des to AES when, when that transition happened in the early 2000s. Um, if I'm someone who's building a product, crypto agility might be 
making sure that my, my software libraries and my APIs are architected in such a way that it's very straightforward for me to switch. If I'm using a DLL, switch from one library to another. So we do a lot of work with our customers around understanding how do they make their systems more agile? Because that brings the cost down for them in terms of how do they deal with crypto. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. That's hugely helpful. Now on your website, there's a solution that you've named protect against harvest and decrypt. Can you please explain this offering and tell us who needs this solution? Of course. So we have, as I mentioned before, there's this work around building quantum computers and we have quantum computers today, but they're still sort of baby quantum computers. They can't solve real world problems yet, but there's great progress in getting them to that point where they can do that. So that means that if I send, if I need, if I'm worried about somebody using a quantum computer today to attack my systems, not too stressed about it because they can't break the commercial crypto yet. But if I send communications on the internet, which is encrypted, we know that nation states around the world are storing encrypted communications. Why are they doing this? Well, because as part of those encrypted communications are, is enough information to allow them to decrypt that if they could break the RSA problem or the elliptic curve problem. And in this threat where someone stores up encrypted communications today to read it later on, it's called harvest and decrypt. And so before we have standards around quantum safe cryptography, we can't transition everything over into those new systems. We need things standardized, make sure that things are updated and, and understood well enough before we do that. But for some things, which you need to be safe for 10, 15, 20 years, there's solutions that you can do today. And that, that's sort of known as hybrid um, encryption. So the idea is use what we use today. So that might, maybe that's elliptic curves, maybe that's RSA for setting up keys. So for example, when you connect to Amazon, there's a, um, uh, there's a public key exchange, which happens to set up the um, AES key to protect your transaction. Um, that's all well and good. The idea of hybrid is that you do that, but then you also do an exchange using one of the candidates that were believed to be quantum safe. Maybe that's Kyber, if you really like lattices. Maybe it's Psych, if you really like isogenes. You do this exchange and then you combine the results and you use that to protect the information then. It's sort of the best of both worlds because it allows us to um, continue to use the protections that we have already today, the classical protection, but then layer in the quantum safe um, alternatives on top of it today to have, give us that forward-looking protection so that someone can't just store those communications and then decrypt it later on. And then, of course, once all the standards are in place, we just move to using those entirely then. Fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. Now, there's a unique program that I noticed on your website. It's the ICERA Quantum Safe Readiness Program for Enterprises. What exactly is this program? And is this primarily for financial institution? Who's the target client for this? Yeah, the target is really any, any um, large organization who is worried about how do I prepare for this quantum threat? It, it, if we think about what's going on in the world of quantum computing, we see a lot of news every day about, you know, uh, particular quantum computing companies getting funding, some people, you know, becoming public. And that's because there's this gold rush going on around what is the, effectively, what's the transistor for the quantum computing world going to be? 
know, we went through all of this um, back in the in the fifties, for example, in, in the digital computing world. Um, but we're doing all that again for quantum computing right now. And often it's hard for companies to understand. Well, how do I breathe through all of that noise and understand what actually affects me as an organization? How do I get down to the? This is what the as we were discussing a little earlier. This is what the quantum threat means to me as an organization. And how do I start putting plans in place? And that's what the quantum readiness program is focused on. It's around educating organizations, help them understand what the quantum threat is, how it affects them, and then working with them on their plan on how they prepare for it then. Some organizations, this might mean, well, let's let's work on a proof of concept to understand for a product that you're building, how would you integrate you know, quantum safe algorithms in and, and help you get your roadmap prepared for it then. For um, uh, an organization that's focused on their own network, maybe this is where things like Isara Advanced come in, where you actually deploy it across your network and start to analyze the crypto that you see on your network and start using that as a way to plan what needs to change today, what can change five years from now, and just as importantly, what are we going to end a life in four or five years? And so we don't worry about it. We just put a little post-it note beside it to know that, okay, well, you know, shut this off by the state type of thing. So it's really about that, that getting that plan in place for the organization so they know how they themselves will prepare for the quantum threat. And what is most challenging for you when you explain your solutions to prospects and getting them to understand, um, you know, to acquire your services sooner rather than later? There's a couple. Uh, one of the big ones, of course, is understanding, well, how do I prioritize this threat against all of the other security threats that I worry about then? You know, if we look at, you know, what have been big in the news over the last 12 months, well, ransomware, that's been huge. Um, you know, if you look at so many organizations where they've had to figure out how do, how do they get ready for ransomware? How do they make sure that they have the right backup strategy in place so that also doesn't get infected by any type of ransomware incident then? Um, that's like one of those burning, you know, 10 alarm fires that they're worried about then. But preparing for the quantum threat is really more about the, you know, how do I put these more longer term plans in place for my organization to get ready there? And, and today, a lot of that is about helping them understand what's the data, what's the data they need to know for their organization so they can characterize it well. What, what I expect we'll see happening over the next few years will be more and more standards organizations, um, audit type organizations starting to recognize this as being a potential um, uh, weakness within an organization that they might need to report into the audit committee for the organization. And once you start reporting things into the board of directors, that's a good way to help prioritize action that needs to take place then. So that is where we spend a lot of our time is helping companies understand where does this fit within their list of priorities that they need to worry about as an organization. Um, because you know, sometimes it's harder to get ready for the kind of little more longer term things when you've got some things which are on fire at that exact moment in front of you. And how large is your organization? How many employees do you presently have? So we're about 50 uh, uh, people, um, almost all based in the Waterloo area then. And we're, as an organization, primarily um, research and development. Are you planning to expand in the near future? And do you do fundraising rounds? Yeah, a great question. So um, we are venture backed. 
uh, as an organization. We've been through our, our Series A, our sort of seed and Series A, and kind of in the early stages of sort of a next round of, of fundraising then. Um, yes, absolutely looking to expand, you know, as you as you can imagine, we have a number of different areas where we focus in terms of building toolkits, you know, Sarah Advance, where we're really looking at enterprise software that we're providing then. Um, there is a lot of growth associated with all of those areas then, both from an R&D perspective and also from a sales and marketing business development perspective as well too. So it's a, it's very busy times right now. And do you share how much you've raised today? Yes, uh, we do on our website there. So we have um, raised so far um, uh, 10 million um, during our first first round, and then I think 15 million in our initial round as well too. So it's a, a good start. Thank you. Yeah. So let's shift now, please. So sure. what is the most fun part of your job? So I've had the privilege of working within both large and small organizations during my career, um, within more um, uh, kind of government academic type organizations, within uh, enterprises and, and kind of all points in between. And one of the most fun things for us when we started the company was to try to create an organization um, that was able to be structured in the way that, that we really wanted then. Like it's taking that advantage of those you know, positives from some things and avoid the negatives from other areas then. So kind of bringing that experience into building an organization has been one of my favorite things along the way. And it doesn't help. It doesn't hurt that uh, we have a pretty fun technical area to focus on as well, too. Sure, sure. And what has been the toughest part or the hardest lesson of your entrepreneurial journey to date? Yeah, there's been there's been lots uh, during that. Then it, it's you know it's been a fun learning experience around all that. Then you know sometimes it it's um, understanding how to explain hard topics to people that um, they don't have that as their their background. Then and and one of the things that I found uh, I'll focus on quantum specifically right now. There's always because quantum has such the science fiction connotation about it. The beginning, we would always have people that wanted to debate the ins and outs of um, superconducting qubits versus ion traps versus, you know, um, what do we see happening in silicon-based, um, I, I, you know, options out there? What's going on with photonics? And and it's sometimes we ended up having to go and take a step back with a few people and say, do you know how your desktop computer works? Because you no, know, as cool as those are, those are, and I love talking about them then. They're really not relevant to the IT decision you need to make here in terms of what's going to happen in crypto or not. You know what? Ion traps versus photonics versus um, superconducting qubits. There'll be winners. There'll be losers out of those then. But this, the impact to you is going to be the same no matter which one is selected then. So really helping people understand those complex topics has been one of the hardest things um, along the way. That is super interesting. Wow. And... Um... How would you advise entrepreneurs that are eager, enthusiastic about entering the quantum industry? Yeah, it, as an industry, we're very much in the the, the young stages still, uh, which is great. And you know, for any any entrepreneur, it's about finding that combination of you know, the thing that you're really passionate about and the thing that you, you might have a competitive advantage about in terms of your knowledge, your experience, whatever that might be. Um, and then, of course, what you think people can pay you for. <laughs> you need to find the connection between all of those um, there. And I, I think what what Quantum is starting to show right now is that there are great opportunities for people that can bring in sort of 
experience from a couple of areas. So if you have, say, a physics background and a computer science background, that is a unique type of combination then, because you can understand, if we're thinking about, say, things like quantum algorithms, you can understand that in a much different way than someone who's coming in purely from a computer science um, background, uh, for example. Similarly, you know, we have all of this work around how do I build a hardware-based quantum computer? So solving those, those ion trap uh, questions and things that I mentioned before then. But there's also the problem around that, though, of, well, how does chemistry fit into it? How does the, you know, again, the algorithm piece, how does the, how do I come up with ways to program the uniqueness of those different areas? And so I, I think if you, if you can find that area where you have sort of that unique experience in a couple of areas which are related to quantum, I think that puts you in an extremely strong position. When was the moment that you decided that you want to dedicate a chunk of your life to cryptography? How did that come about? Well, I, I've always been interested in, you know, spies and codes from a young age. So, you know, reading, reading books about, you know, secret codes and, uh, you know, uh, you know uh, using lemon juice and fire and stuff to write messages and things like that. So I was always interested in that from a young age. And I was always interested in mathematics. And I was lucky in that um, being uh, from Ontario, where I am, we have the University of Waterloo, which is well known internationally for cryptography. And it gave me that opportunity to go in and, and study mathematics and computer science, which I was interested in, but then specialize in crypto. So I, it, it was kind of fortuitous sort of having that sort of, you know, not far from my hometown uh, then to be able to have that study together. And then I've been, been pretty lucky to be able to work in a number of organizations to look at the applied part of it. Because one of the things which I think is great about crypto is that it, it's taking, let's be honest, some very esoteric areas of math, but applying them to specific real world problems and thinking about how do you deploy them and use them. You know, or, or it, it would be very infrequent that I would talk about, you know, isogenies of supersingular elliptic curves, except for the fact that it's crypto and crypto is thinking about how to use that kind of um, wacky area of math to solve some very specific problems. So um, it, it's just been a great sort of um, uh, confluence of events there. And how did you meet your co-founder? So Scott and I actually worked together. So Scott Toski, our CEO, we worked together at BlackBerry for um, uh, about 14 years, actually. So we worked together and helped build a product security practice together. Um, he was a project manager and I was a software developer uh, when we first started working together then. So yeah, we had a chance to work together for a long time. And, and my time at BlackBerry was great because one of the things that BlackBerry was well known for was using elliptic curve cryptography, um, which is, of course, one of the classical schemes that we worry about now, um, and use it in mobile devices. And because of um, who the customers for BlackBerry were, we would get tons and tons of very detail-oriented questions from customers around the world who were worried about, well, how does my, my email is going out to this email is so important. Um, how do I know it's safe and how do I know it's protected then? So it was, that was, it was great because I got a chance to work with Scott there and just the whole um, opportunities there um, to kind of apply crypto into con the constrained world there. And how do you solve conflict, disagreements? Yeah, it, it's interesting because I think everyone has their own style and in, one of the things that I found that works really well for me is recognizing what where what my default style is <laughs> versus other people's default style. And because I, I think in conflict, 
you know, it becomes very easy for people to revert to what they know best. And um, for me, I am very much more of a listener. So my style is to listen to you know, uh, people, hear them out, and then try to find common ground with them that way. Um, but part of the listening is trying to recognize how people are, are what their defaults are there as well. Because I know that some people, if I act like that, that won't work in the slightest because that is the <laughs> that is the 180 degrees away from how they want to deal with the problem then. So a lot of listening um, and a lot of uh, talking and taking time. So who usually wins when there's a conflict between you and Scott, you or Scott? <laughs> Depends on the problem then. If I can use math, then that helps then. So <laughs> luckily we are on the same page most of the time then. So it uh, that, that helps uh, keep a very good working relationship. Thank you. So is this your first company? I'm curious as to what drove you to this decision to launching a new venture. Yeah, so this is the first company where I've been involved in like this. So from the ground floor, um, you know, the for me, it was really a, a timing. Um, you know, I would had the opportunity to work at, at Blackberry for 14 years. I've learned a lot there and was ready for something new. And, you know, I mentioned before that Waterloo is this hotbed for cryptography, but it's also this hotbed for quantum. And so, you know, the, the University of Waterloo, the Institute for Quantum Computing, there's great research there in terms of, you know, the, the state of the art and all of the, from the hardware to theoretical to the, the software um, parts of, uh, of quantum computing. And, you know, it was a lot of conversations, you know, Scott, Scott and myself about what would be something um, interesting to do. And, and one of the things that, that we have in Waterloo as well is, you know, a, a great VC scene in the quantum space. So our, our seed investors were Quantum Valley Investments, who um, started by Mike Lazaridis and Doug Freegan, who were the founders of BlackBerry. And so we had the opportunity to you know, work with them around you know, defining a problem that we thought um, was really interesting to focus on and um, get an investment to get us started then and yeah, go from there. So it's been a great experience. Thank you, thank you. So this past year has been unique in so many ways. The pandemic yes. has completely changed our world. What have you learned about yourself during in the last 12 to 18 months? Well, so I have young kids that are still in, in elementary school right now. So one of the first ones has been around sharing of internet and sharing of uh, uh, computer equipment. But no, the big thing for me has been, you know, there's a, you know, I, I've had to shift my job so that it is almost entirely on things like this, like WebEx and Zoom and uh, Microsoft Teams and other systems like that then. And so it's been a big change in terms of how to interact with people. Like when you don't have that ability to just stop by someone's desk um, that you did before, you recognize where you have to um, uh, force it more. So for example, as a company, one of the things that we always had as a company um, was sort of a, a three o'clock water cooler type chat where people would get together and, you know, people would wander to the kitchen and that was where gossip is, is exchanged, but also just is a chance to just chat about anything then. And so as a company, we actually instituted a, a virtual version of that then to have continue those conversations. And everyone's invited within the company at the same time every day. Not everyone comes, but when they come, it's just, it's an opportunity to sort of, you know, vent, chat, talk about whatever it is. Um, you know, the Stanley Cup playoffs are going on right now. So there's all of those types of things which are, are you need to have because what the pandemic has done is made it more difficult to kind of keep a culture within an organization unless you're thinking about your culture. And so we've tried to spend a lot of time in focusing on that specific problem. And how has the pandemic impacted your business? So 
Um, we've continued to grow during the pandemic, so we've had to change how we um, onboard people because now again, it's not, you know, um, meet them and give them a laptop and show them around the office. We've had to change how that that works then, but we have continued to grow. We've been, you know, with the announcement of uh, ICER Advance today, we've obviously been very focused on building during all that time there. Um, certainly, it's a change in terms of how you do customer outreach and how do you start working with new people. Um, you know, those, um, I, I, one of the things that I've found is that things like conferences, um, you know, I think delivery of technical material is great online. Um, trying to meet people and chat with people at, in virtual conferences does not work very well, at least in my experience and a lot of people I've spoken to as well. Um, because you don't have those same sort of run into someone and notice, oh, you're from that company. Let's let's chat about something then. And, and those those sort of you know um, accidental connections, they're so much more difficult. And so what what you know I've been kind of observing all of those there. And what what my hope out of all this here is that we can figure out a way to kind of get more of a hybrid around that. So knowing what are the types of things which are great to deliver in a, an online system versus what are the things that you really want to have those? I do a lot of work in the standards world um, and, um, you know, the having a face to face standards meeting to really work through something and then have dinner afterwards to talk about other issues that maybe people didn't feel comfortable bringing up during the meeting. Um, I really miss a lot of that. Thank you. And last question. Where do you see ICERA in five years? Will you be a publicly traded traded company by then? <laughs> well, I do see us being um, bigger and more successful uh, as a company then. Um, I, luckily, I'm not the finance person, so I don't need to worry about that part then. But no, the, the work we're doing with launching ICERA Advance is really focused on the enterprise market. You know, this is something that you know, we we see as being important for many, many large organizations around the world. And so, you know, five years from now, we have a long roadmap that we need to work through, uh, you know, speaking from the technical side, um, for this product to kind of reach the customer base that we want to there. In addition, during those five years, we're going to see NIST, who's driving quantum safe standards, really bringing those out, um, getting drafts out there and finalizing them. And so the work we do with customers around integrating quantum safe crypto, um, who, which we've already done with you know HSM vendors like Talos and um, companies like BlackBerry who are selling uh, you know, co-signing equipment into the automotive industry, then we think that's just going to accelerate. So we expect to be very, very busy during that time. Do you expect at some point to be a public company or do you plan to be acquired? Well, I, I have no idea of knowing where the future holds that way then, but you know, if things go well for us, I expect we'll continue to grow and be a much bigger company than we are today. Thank you so very much, Mike. You've been so gracious. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a great having the conversation today.